0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast where we talk about new books in media and communications. I am your host, Marcy Maserato. With me today is Gemma Milne, a science and technology writer who is here to talk about her book, Smoke and Mirrors, How Hype Obscures the Future and How to See Past It. Gemma, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here. Yeah, thrilled to have you. Can you give our listeners a little bit of your background? Um
1: professional background, educational background. Cool. Yeah, for sure. Um, probably like most people I have a bit of a strange journey <laughs> into my into my career. Um I started by studying maths at university, um, that was my my undergrad. Um and while I was there I kind of realized that as much as I find pure maths really fascinating um I kind of wanted to try something else and, and didn't want to kind of hone in and just being a mathematician so I did a whole load of different kind of internships I I did door-to-door knocking for one summer um I did another summer as a, as a chef um actually over in the states in Maine um at one of the uh the summer camps and oh, nice. um yeah yeah I when I was before I went to uni I worked as a like a sous chef in like one of these local local pubs uh so I'd, I honed my skills there and brought them to the to the great state of Maine to one of the kids camps <laughs> and, <Great>. uh, <laughs>
0: that's a really unique experience that's yeah. awesome
1: yeah um and in my final summer um or sort of penultimate summer uh uni I um I, I went into investment banking. So I, I thought that that's what I wanted to do. I kind of got wooed by the by the banks coming up to to my University St Andrews and kind of, hello, you're a math student, we kinda like you, and you get paid a lot and you get to live in London and you know it's just flashy and interesting and cool. And I was like, okay, let's give that a go. And I did the internship and was like, no, this is so not for me. So I went back to my final year at uni and really didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. Um, and so I just googled creative business jobs London um, because before I'd gone to uni it was a sort of toss-up between do I try and apply for art school um, or do I go do maths I was kind of really into both um so I thought maybe I could like go back to my creative roots um so of course when you google creative business jobs London advertising pops up because uh, they're quite good at advertising themselves and also it's, <laughs> it's quite a good description of that industry I suppose right, right. um so I ended up at, at Ogilvy and Mather um in London and originally I was you know working in this sort of accounts team client client team working on American Express um, really didn't like that and was actually considering going back to uni and going back to being in science and tech, whatever that meant, because that was really, a, you know, hu- it's always been a huge passion of mine. Um, and luckily, um, I helped out in, at an event that was all about like innovation that Ogilvy had been running. And the head of innovation basically said, hey, my second in command is, is leaving. Do you want his job? Um, and I think I, I, I must have been about 20, 23 or 24 at this at this age so I was quite young um but I got thrown into this incredible job where I was essentially you know tasked with traveling the world meeting startups trying to convince them to partner with um either Ogilvy or Ogilvy clients and learn about tech and science and kind of this emerging world of innovation and digital disruption and all these kind of words um you know so I would go around and speak at conferences or I would um go and meet startups at their various different labs or offices or co-working spaces or whoever it was they were um and kind of thought about you know what does what does the future look like and how are these all these different actors kind of playing a role in it um but at the same time I was still really missing science and tech so decided to start like a podcast um and sort of events organization all around um we called it science disrupt and it was all about how do we change academia make it better so we talked about things like open science and peer review and bias and all that sort of stuff um and then in 2016 um ogilvy decided in, in london decided to shut the innovation team so i was made redundant alongside my colleagues and i decided to just start freelancing kind of out of necessity because i immediately i immediately needed the money and ended up doing a lot of random kind of innovation consulting stuff and um, ended up doing a lot of writing. So kind of fell into freelance journalism um, and really realized that actually this is where I, this is what I really love. I love thinking about things and researching them and then sharing them, whether it's through podcasts or talks or consulting or or books, um, obviously ended up writing Spoken Mirrors. Um, and, but I think kind of what kind of is at the center of a lot of this stuff is that Uh, you know hype and convincing people and persuasion and all this sort of stuff i've had kind of a sort of interesting relationship with this idea because obviously i've worked in places like advertising and and even investment banking the department i was in in investment banking was the one that that does the ipos so a big role of that department is going around selling uh the companies that they're trying to flow in the market so a big part of that is 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 the sell it's called the roadshow, and. but also feeling really sceptical about it and feeling like something about this just isn't right. (laughs) You know, I think it's kind of obvious now you say, the worlds of advertising and investment banking there's so much so many issues in these um, industries but as a young person I suppose I was going through the motions of seeing um the stuff play out and then of course as a, a journalist covering science and tech getting pitches in my inbox and then seeing problematic behavior by companies and, and all sorts um really reflecting on what is hype and how is it used and, and what power does it have um and I'm actually now now I've finished my book I'm actually now gone back to uni. Um, I'm now doing a PhD in science and technology studies um, at UCL, and I'm focusing specifically on the ethics and responsibility of corporate futurism. So I feel like I'm kind of done a bit of a full circle to some degree.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. That's that's a really unique journey, uh, you know, to, to be that young and to to already be doing this at, at Ogilvy, one of the largest firms in the world, mm. is pretty, I, I mean, the, the exposure and the experience that you get from that is is I, I priceless. I mean, Yes, yeah, priceless. priceless. Really, it really yeah. is. That's that's pretty amazing. Um, and now you're you're back in and doing a PhD. So. Um, yeah so uh, welcome to the world of academia. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting as
1: well because obviously spending this time with with, it used to be called Science Disruptor Podcast it's now called the Radical Science Podcast but you know we spent a lot of time talking about the issues in academia and incentive structures and um, the sort of currency of citations and all this sort of stuff and really and really kind of going at it and saying this is the problem at the heart of all this and to now kind of I suppose I'm going in with eyes wide open and being like, okay, what are the amazing things in academia? What, what are the opportunities here to really dive into topics? But also how can I still be conscious of all these um, areas that I know can be touchy and interesting and worth paying attention to? <laughs>
0: yeah I think it's great I mean having you know I have 15 years of, of you know industry experience and and, and I worked for Apple mm. um, so I, I do have you know tech experience in, in that regard my, my PhD is in, in techs and technology which is kind of a, of, a, of an interesting name but it's really focused on looking at you uh, Technology in, in relation to human communication, mm. so it's not in the science side, but in, in terms of how we communicate in texts is audio, visual, written. So a lot of those um, different things, and certainly the applicability of the, of a particularly interdisciplinary PhD program, it's it's heightened by having that experience in the industry. So I think you're, uh, it's going to be great whether you choose to kind of go the... Academic, you know, research or teaching route or not, but um, but I, I I feel like those two things are incredibly powerful. It's a it's a unique journey uh, it was for me, you know, having kind of both been in, in the industry side and, and the academic side. But I think you're um, that that's amazing that you're you're doing that. So no,
1: it's definitely something I've thought a lot about to be honest, especially now that I'm in my program and kind of looking around and seeing who else is around me, not just within my department at my university, but also just more generally, like what kind of people are in academia nowadays. And I think particularly for something like science, technology studies, which is, you know, it's interdisciplinary by design and and by nature as as a field. Um, But yeah, exactly. Being able to have that kind of, it's not just about having the experience and understanding the culture of these places but it's also because a lot of my work is around ethics and responsibility it's also about wrestling with your own complicity in these things and maybe this is something we'll, we'll talk about um more with reference to the book as well but um it's something that i think a lot about like me working in these different places being a member of the media Um, And then thinking critically about things like hype and and futurism and responsibility, like I'm a part of all of those things. Um, So, you know, having that experience across many different jobs kind of primes you for being able to try and, work out your place within it all as well, um, if that makes sense.
0: <laughs> sure. No, it does. It absolutely does. And I think that that's like kind of spending time talking about your background as we are right now really contextualizes how you got to this idea of hype mm. and what hype really means and how it obscures exactly what's happening and how we can really look at our own um, complicitness in this and how we can move past it. So, so I, I can definitely, I, I definitely see that. Uh, so speaking of hype, Let's start with uh, how you
1: define hype in this book specifically. Sure, yeah. I thought this would be a really easy thing to do when I started writing the book. I was like, yeah, I'll just like look up a definition and um, start from there. But it turns out there's quite a lot of different definitions of hype. And also, not just that in terms of the formal dictionaries, but lots of people have different ideas of hype in their head as well. Um, you know, I noticed that when I was doing my interviews, I would always open them by saying, what do you think hype is? And everybody had a different answer. Um, some people saw it as... Uh, very deliberate and bad and evil and other people sort of saw it as like trendy more like fashion so there's lots of different connotations but the way I I personally think about hype is separated from things like disinformation misinformation, fake news whatever you want to call it Um, I think hype is not intentional um, I guess lying or deception or anything like that it's more about um i guess exaggerated publicity and the realm in which i kind of think about it which links to the title of the book smoke and mirrors um is when you think about magic so if you go to a magic show um you walk into this magic show consenting to be fooled um you might try and work out how the magician fools you. You might try and work out how the trick works, or you might just sit and like bask in the entertainment of being fooled. But either way, you are consenting to be fooled by walking into that room. Um, If someone lies to you, that's non-consensual fooling. Um, Hype can result in what I think of as accidental fooling, where a message is put out into the world. And whether it's because of its simplicity or its emotional connotations, or perhaps it's perceived in a sort of contextless way, um, or someone's read it who isn't from the same kind of culture as the person who wrote it or whatever, it results in the audience being fooled by that message. And that's not to say that whoever put it out is not at fault. Um, it's also not to say that the person reading it is not at fault. But the point being is that it's it's a message that comes out used for the sole purpose of capturing attention. This is not a tool for understanding. It's a tool for capturing attention and can sometimes um, lead to filling as a result.
0: Yeah. And I think we we live in uh, a very attention seeking society. Mm. Uh, I think if we look at Silicon Valley and big tech companies, that's what they're in the business of attention.
1: Mm. Yeah. I um, mean, absolutely. Right.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, I, So I think it's, and you, and you focus on, you break down the book into three different parts where you have now, next, and nearing. And then in each of those parts, you talk about different examples of hype, which are deeply problematic um, to society. Uh, and so you do a, like a really great job kind of saying, hey, this is what the hype is. This is what the problem is with that hype. And this is what we can do about it. Uh, so in many ways, it's, it's practical. You start with talking about farming, which I thought was a really unique place to start. Um, so talk more about that.
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I, you know, funnily enough, I actually originally wanted to start the the book with the batteries chapter, but my publisher was like, mm, "I think you're going to lose people uh, if you, on the first page if you say batteries." I was like, "What? Batteries are exciting! What are you talking about?" But I think they had a point. <laughs> um, I think they had a point. Um, yeah, so I, I farming uh, kind of seemed like the the best next step because it's something that it's uh, an industry that we interact with. Probably more than any other, arguably. Um, every single person on the planet eats. Um, but it's also, I think, a very underthought about industry in many different ways. I don't think we spend that much time thinking about how the food gets to our plate. We might think about the, I don't know, how much carbohydrate or protein is in our foods and how it's going to make us look or feel um, or how tasty it is and what's good and what's bad. But we don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, how did this banana get to be in front of me right now. Um, And I think that I kind of wanted to start there because there's a lot of really interesting um, narratives that exist within this industry that can result in not only sometimes just a simple lack of consideration, um, but also a kind of misfire. Um, So I guess the the hype that I wanted to focus on to do with farming with respect to kind of science and technology is this idea of like technology will save us. Um, so we hear a lot about the issues with the farming industry, the fact that it's, um, you know, really bad for the soil. Um, it's, you know, destroying the planet, pa- uh, destroying the planet in so many ways in terms of carbon emissions. Um, you know, we hear a lot about, you know, we should be moving away from eating meat and moving to more vegan diets and um, because of the issues that it has in so many different ways. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's all, it's common knowledge now that there's huge issues in the way we farm. Um, and so this, I guess a lot of the technologies that come out of the ag tech space or the agri-food space or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Agri-food tech is sometimes um, what it's called as well, kind of positions the the technologies as this kind of saviour to this really big problem. And the big problem being how do we feed everyone and how do we not kill the planet, which obviously is a multifaceted, ginormous, um, problem that cannot be solved by a simple technological fix. Mm. Um, or at least you'd think that that would be obvious but that's not always how we talk about technology with respect to farming. So if you think about things like for instance um you know lab grown meat or vertical farms these technologies are amazing technologies, right? The, the science is, is really interesting. It's it's clever in lots of different ways. It's complicated. Um but it doesn't necessarily actually solve the problems that it's positing to to um, to solve or positioning itself to solve. Um, I kind of see a lot of these technologies as band-aids over gaping wounds. And so the role that hype can play in the sort of farming industry is is kind of distracting us from really difficult hard, I guess truths um about what we need to do to really change farming and so this is why the the chapter kind of leads into a discussion about values um i think that one of the biggest uh ways that we could really change the way we do farming is by changing the way we subsidize farming so literally changing laws around farming um which doesn't really get talked about in the mainstream all that often unless you're a policy wonk and you really like keeping up with that sort of stuff um but really, when you look at the kind of rules that we have around how farming is done, it doesn't really matter what technological fixes come in. Um, the much bigger incentive structures and ways that we um, pay for farming and all sorts keeps reinforcing bad practice. So, for instance, we have um, you know farming subsidies, particularly in places like Europe and in the US, that encourages. Um, like monocultures, like, uh, you know, only doing one kind of seed or only growing one kind of crop. Um, And that's really good in terms of getting lots of food. It's good for productivity, but it's really, really bad in terms of the soil. It's not good for, like, long-term, I guess, environmental protection Um, you know we've seen uh, instances in the UK where when you're kind of encouraging farmers to kind of flatten land for instance you can cause flooding as a result because you're you know the subsidies are encouraging farmers to flatten hedges or or whatever so there's a lot of these kind of I guess things that are that are just not going to be solved by going let's grow our meat in a lab or let's grow our um our vegetables in a container that's you know powered by leds and so where you kind of have to sort of shift is then starting talking about values and being like well what is it that we actually want farming to be what is it that we care about do we care about just making lots of food or do we care about making healthy food and making food over a long period of time and, and making food that doesn't destroy the planet and making food that is cheap enough for everybody and all these sorts of things but these are like really difficult conversations to have and it's easier to just kind of go oh silicon valley will save us they're coming up with with these technologies that'll that'll fix this really bad thing that we've got going on or this really difficult thing going on um and kind of stops us from having these difficult conversations so i suppose i kind of wanted to open with something that felt really close to home but al- already you're kind of getting into these quite difficult sort of moral questions that sort of Exists throughout the book um, and really show that you have to look at a system as opposed to just thinking about um, one technology or one piece of science. I, I think it's, it was a very
0: good recommendation on your publisher's part to, to really bring us into food because we can all connect to that. We all have to eat. Mm. Uh, and, and it's so, I think it, it's something that all of humanity shares, and and certainly we still have a lot of um, people who do not have access to food. And you talk about kind of food deserts, and it's a really, like as you mentioned, a multifaceted, very, very, very complex issue. But it's something that, you know, as, as humans, we really need to think about that in terms of technology and in terms of the environmental impact. You bring up veganism, for example, uh, and then this deeply disturbing where you're talking about growing muscle in the lab. And I'm like, wow, this is, <laughs> I just, like, I have like, I had to pause for a second going, how is this? This is real. This is something that's real. And, and so many different things that people are are doing or, or different techs, tech companies that are, that are doing and uh, you know, the, the impossible burger, that being a massive success.
1: Yeah. And right. And it makes sense that it is right. Because it, it, you know it comes back to this idea of like we we don't really want to do the hard thing um so you know when we have these kind of um companies that are doing lab-grown meat of all sorts lab-grown fish lab-grown milk lab-grown eggs there's all, all sorts now um it's, it's this idea of like it's it's too hard to have people not eat meat um so therefore let's make something that we can kind of replace it with and to be honest I you know I, I buy into that I really like meat I really like the taste of it and I would miss it you know um so I, I do understand why these technologies capture the imagination in so many ways. And if if they could be done in such a way that they didn't add extra harm to the planet, they weren't so costly that only um, the wealthy could access, you know, all these sorts of things, um, that's great. And that is the direction that those uh, the developers of these technologies are trying to push things. But the reality at the moment is we're, we're not at a point where we can replace meat with these technologies. So it's like, well, do we wait until the science catches up? Do we wait until these companies, um, you know, are able to make things so much cheaper, are able to do things that aren't energy intensive, or able to do it um, really without using any uh, part of the of the animal? At the moment, there's still a lot of a, a need for um, fetal bovine. Um, uh, liquids basically so you're not you know, able to really be fully entirely vegan and for some of them they're all using different methods but the point being that we're not quite there yet so what do we do in the meantime um so, so that's that's the kind of i guess point that i always try and bring up with um with with hype around science and tech companies is that yes you could look at this um these advancements as as hugely um you know, progressive and you can be optimistic about them for, for different kinds of reasons. But without understanding the context in which these things come to market, um, without un- understanding what the actual problems that we're really trying to solve are and what the kind of full story is around those problems, you you can fall victim to thinking that this is the only solution and therefore you kind of don't need to do anything until then, if that makes sense. Um, sure. So so that's, that's always my kind of... Um, point around not letting hype around these technologies capture the imagination and think that they're the only things that can save us because there's many other things that can can (laughs) we can do and we can uh, you know we can have power over too right you can feel really powerless um sometimes with these kind you know well i can't save the, the the world from the bad effects of farming you know i can become vegan but that's really you know is that the only thing i can do um, but introducing people to things like subsidies, like laws that exist around um, these kind of areas and the and the other stuff that kind of is worth considering, it suddenly, I don't know, it kind of opens up opportunities for being like, oh, actually, I do have a bit more power here. I can vote in certain ways if I understand how farming works, if I understand what this problem actually looks like, um, instead of kind of thinking it only exists through the lens of being a thing that a tech company is trying to solve.
0: That's a great point that you make about being an informed voter,
1: mm.
0: and I think really the the most besides growing the muscle in the lab, which I I think is is both amusing <laughs> amusing and gross, but I get it um, <laughs> as we, we as you mentioned. But really, the most uh, but in all seriousness, the most terrifying thing in this particular chapter is the farmers. And their emotional, mental, and physical health. And just how, you know, you talk about how the, the suicide rate amongst farmers is really high. And when we look at the treatment of farmers as human beings, it really is, I mean, it's a human rights issue. It's it's really, really terrifying. Uh, and then you talked a little bit about subsidies and how they're good in theory, but they're not. How are those things related? And what what can we do as society to elevate Farming, particularly from the human level and the human perspective of farming, those are the who are actually farming for the substance of of the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um the first thing that I would say to anyone if they want to know more about this and and genuinely, you know follow it um is is follow Sarah Tabor on on Twitter. She is awesome. On um, on farming stuff. That's that's the person I kind of go to when I'm looking for for insights. There, her um, her feed is is full of really amazing insights. And she, what she does, and this is kind of what I endeavor to do, is try and break down these systems and try and get rid of myths or I guess cultural ideas around. Um, what farming is Um, so like you mentioned for instance the suicide rate so this is something i mean i I have to put a caveat in it depends on which study you look at and whatnot i cite the different studies that um that i mentioned in the book but there's been um a look into how impacts on things like um you know outputs of um, farming or weather events or um things like when there was the sort of. issues around uh, foot and mouth disease in the UK, for instance, what that did to farmers when they had to kill their, their, um, their, their cows and whatnot. So there's different kinds of studies that look at this. It's particularly pro- uh, prominent in places like India. Um, and a lot of this is it's it, again, it's multifaceted, right? So you can't just say because of subsidies and, you know, farmers not getting enough money because of the weather, they're therefore killing themselves. There's obviously so much more to it. And um, sure. however, there is ways of looking at systems and understanding the interconnectedness of how events happen, right? So if you look at things like, for instance, um, you know, farmers' mental, physical health, it's not just a case of going, okay, well, if there's a storm, um, farmers aren't able to, you know, have as many crops and therefore they don't make as much money, so therefore they're, they're really badly affected. Well, yes but there's other things to think about for instance like well what does insurance look like so then suddenly you're looking at an insurance uh, business and what are the models of insurance that exist for farmers and who can access insurance what kind of insurance right so that's that's one thing you could look at you could then look at things for instance like regenerative farming practices are some farmers that are doing those practices not as affected by storms or ones that are kind of um going down the kind of monoculture like uh standard quote-unquote bad for the planet practices, are they more affected by storms? In which case you can suddenly start making arguments for resilience as opposed to just, this is good for the planet, right? It's also like this protects your um your income and whatnot right um you also have to think about things like for instance um companies and patents right and ownership um over certain kind of um chemicals and materials and whatnot that are used in farming and how that can disempower farmers so you know there's there's many different ways of kind of looking at this and of course you then have to look at the the case of like well who are farmers right you have smallholder farms which are well, kind of as they sound, small farms, you kind of have family farms, which can be really big, um, and they can have a lot of cultural power in some places. Um, and then you have like industrial farms, which are huge. So you kind of have to not just think of farming as this one thing, right? It's it's like understanding that it's different, even within one country, um, but changes, of course, all around the world. And that might seem really, overwhelming to some being like well how on earth am I meant to understand all of farming when I don't like you know work in this field and I don't follow it closely by reading all the agriculture media outlets but the thing I always kind of return to is you have to understand that everything is a system like nothing just exists right and actually I think one of the things that's been oh I don't know if the word is positive but enlightening about the whole pandemic that we're going through right now is I think it has massively exposed how interconnected many different systems are within society. Like, we're seeing how food systems link with supply chains, which link with demand, which link with education. You know, whether or not people can access schools or not, that impacts how much stuff is in the supermarket, which impacts, you know, shipping. And so I think it's it's about seeing that. And it's not about going... I couldn't possibly understand it all, but it's about going, I'm not going to take particular ideas as absolutist and 100%. um, This is the way it is because this article tells me or whatever. It's going, well, hold on. What's the system that this exists within? What are the different variables? Um, And how can I try and find the context around it? Um, So, you know, I suppose that's kind of where I got to when I was thinking about what are the adverse effects of farming on the planet the obvious obvious ones we tend to talk about are things like climate change they are things like um talking about um you know malnutrition which you know as i said in the book is not just about underfeeding it's also about overfeeding um obesity is in is a bigger problem by some kind of estimates than um people who are starving because of the health impacts of obesity that exist in, in places where people have good access to food um, but then you could also argue that mal- malnutrition is also about not having all the right vitamins. So if you live in some places in the US, as you said, food deserts, you don't have access to good food, um, even though it might be cheap. So th- there's, there's many different kind of parts of the equation. And so when you think about what is bad about farming eventually it gets to the point of like, well, how does this actually impact farmers, not just in terms of their bottom line, but how they live their lives. And of course, the irony of the whole thing is, um, you know, when you look at sort of global farming, um, you see that many, many, many people um, who are the ones that are starving on this planet are farmers. They're the ones that grow food. Um, and that for me was kind of the, the sort of point that we sometimes, you know, we lose when we don't think about this whole system.
0: Yeah, you mentioned briefly the, tr- the idea of context. And that's, when I was reading your book, that's what kept coming up to me as an academic who, you know, studies this and teaches this. It's that it's so much about context, not only context, but critically thinking about the context and thinking about these very intricate and multifaceted issues and how they're all interconnected because things just don't happen in a vacuum. We, you know, humanity, we're just so interconnected. And as you mentioned, the kind of enlightening effects perhaps that is coming out of the pandemic is just really looking at how that interconnectedness of, of just a, a simple supply chain. Right. Um, so I just, it, it, to me, it was really, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was really over and over again. I was like, wow, you really need to understand the context because just to say, I'm going to go and buy almond, uh, you know, almond milk, because that's going to be better
1: than dairy milk. Is it? why, how? Yeah. And it's difficult right. to not get lost in this too, right? Because you, you could go round and round and round in circles. You could be standing in the food aisle, uh, you know, holding almond milk in one hand and coconut milk or whatever else it is in the other, trying to make some decision, some moralistic decision about which one is better. And, yes. and the answer <laughs> is, in there. yeah, exactly. Right. And the answer is it depends. Um, it depends on so many different factors, not just you as an individual and what you prefer which you're entitled to um but also you know precisely where you live in the world and precisely which supermarket you're at and which brands you're looking at and all sorts of things so it's not about getting lost in trying to find the answer um but it's about you know this it it sounds like a cop-out but it's about remembering that context is important and not letting a lack of context um kind of fool you Into believing that something is absolutely true, no matter like and this is not about doubting every single thing that you read, but it's about realizing that if you have a headline or a short article or an idea that's kind of um you come across or is given to you that is limited or you don't get the full story or whatever. Um, it's realizing that there's always more to be said and there's more to be built on and that stuff exists within something else so you know saying for instance almond milk is bad and someone can say to you almond milk is bad because i don't know the, the, the amount of carbon that's emitted through the farming of it i don't know the specific reason why almond milk is bad um but you know say that that's why but then it's suddenly going well what about water for instance or what about um i don't know how far it has to travel or what about, um, the other options? What, you know, how do you compare and all this sort of thing. So there's, I think it's about being, um, having a mind that is able to go, do you know what? There's more to this. And there's no way of ever really, there's no way of knowing what's right and wrong. I mean, God, moral philosophy has existed for years and it's not like we've got answers to any of it. Right. Um, but I think it's about not assuming that there is an answer and that this is the one because I've read it in this place um so therefore I can kind of just live my life knowing it and I don't need to think about it anymore because I've got the answer um that's kind of what I always try and advocate for and I suppose also going back to your point around like informed voting um you know I, I think if someone tries to offer you a really easy simple answer to something you're you're probably missing something and that doesn't mean that you're stupid or that they're deliberately trying to deceive you or whatever. But the reality is that we live in a really complicated world, and we all we want things to be simple. We want to just go to the supermarket and be able to pick an almond milk without getting lost on you know Google for two hours or however long. And of course, <laughs> we should you know be able to just pick up almond milk or pick up whatever else. Um, but the point being is not everything in life can always be so simple. And if we really want to engage with the world, if we want to, um, I don't know, go through life feeling like we're paying attention and that things are not happening to us that we are involved um and shaping this society and this planet that we that we live on and in, then that requires the a little bit of discomfort, um, but also comfort in existing in a place that sometimes is very complicated and that is contradictory and and all that stuff holding two ideas in our head at the same time you know that that's the trick really to critical thinking
0: <laughs> yeah that's that's very true and i think your your chapter on batteries really does a great job at further contextualizing the idea of like well sure we would love to have electric cars but it's actually much more complicated than that when we look at the elements, the chemicals that are, that need to be extracted and used to create batteries for cars or batteries for phones, which are very different. Can you talk more about that?
1: Sure. So yeah, this, this, um, this chapter is all about balance um, and kind of building on this idea of like, how do you, how do you go through the process of working out what, what the balance is or, um, you know, how to make a decision or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, so batteries are, um, I guess a really exciting technology at the moment or that it gets talked about a lot because it's at the core of other um, amazing advancements that people are interested in. So things like renewables, for instance, um, you know, if you have a, a wind turbine or something like that, if you create, uh, energy through these renewable means a lot of time you don't have uh control of when the wind blows or when the sun shines but you might need energy at times when the sun is not shining or the wind is not blowing so in the meantime you have to store the energy that's created and then you discharge it at the points that it's needed so that that's batteries that's what's needed for that for that process so in order to kind of unlock power of renewables you need really good batteries um and you mentioned electric cars the most expensive component um and therefore in business terms, the most important component of a electric car, uh, if you're talking about cost, is the battery. And so getting, you know, batteries that don't cost the, the world so that, you know, these technologies end up being accessible, um, that are, you know, quick to charge. You know, if you think about if you're driving somewhere, you don't want to have to sit for three hours and wait for your car to charge, um, that are, you know, don't overheat, That so they're safe. Um, all, all sorts of kind of variables that are important when you think about um, batteries for cars. And then of course the variables change when you're thinking about things like devices. So a car battery um, it, yeah, and, and a phone battery, you want them to be light, but a battery for, you know, that sits next to a wind turbine, it doesn't matter if that's heavy, right? Um, so, you know, it's like, how do you, you have to think about all the different variables that are needed for each individual kind of, um, I guess, uh, utility of each battery. And the kind of, um, the hyped up narrative you hear a lot in the batteries world and you see this written in headlines and in press releases and things like that is that somebody has found the holy grail of batteries um and the holy grail is is a battery that can kind of has got all the best attributes if that makes sense so you know as i say it's cheap it's light it's, uh it charges quickly it's safe all these sorts of things um but of course as i've just pointed out and people in the batteries industry know this, different batteries work for different things. But this idea of holy grail, this idea of like getting to the point you've got the perfect battery, is a, is a thing that kind of comes through a lot and is something that it seems like you're sort of striving for. Um so you can kind of you could stop there with the story. You could say, okay, well, you can use different kind of technologies and they have different kind of attributes and they're important for these technologies. And you could you could maybe stop a the discussion there because there's tons there to explore. Um but then when you go one step further and go, well, what's the business of batteries in terms of who's building these, who's manufacturing these, who's inventing these, who's shipping these? Um, suddenly you get into this, uh, like conversation that's, that's rooted in geopolitics. Um, because China is, is the leader uh, when it comes to battery, uh, production. They're, you know, they, they, and electric car production and scooters and buses and all sorts. So. You know, you, you end up kind of having discussions about, well, what does it mean for one country to be a real leader in a space that a lot of other countries are going to be very reliant on, whether it's China or another country, just this idea of power. Um, and then you can even go a step further and kind of be like, well, how do we even make batteries? And suddenly you're talking about minerals like cobalt and lithium. And when you look at how we get cobalt and lithium, um, you end up in a, a mine in the Democratic Republic of Congo where there's human rights abuses happening left, right, and center. Um, and you know, there's a lot of these minerals are called conflict minerals because they they are the thing that, the, that people are fighting over in wars and, and and so on and so forth. So there's so many different things to consider when you when you think about what goes into a battery and and what the sort of worldwide demand for batteries. Uh, results in or is reliant upon and so when you if you come back to this idea of balance you have to start thinking about okay what is it we're trying to optimize for here so if you were to say okay we're trying to optimize for getting off of fossil fuels so we really need batteries right now in order to unlock uh the power of renewables in order to stop us from using petrol or diesel powered cars and lorries and so on and so forth so we can have battery powered um and, and this is the main thing that we need to do right now. So let's put all the investment in getting these batteries, getting lots of them and getting them to market. Well, what that does is put huge amount of strain on these mines. We don't have good alternatives yet, or at least we don't have good alternatives that are ready to kind of hit that market at that scale and whatnot. So you're literally kind of killing people <laughs> um, causing huge human rights abuses yeah. um, and you're also relying on one country and obviously there's lots of discourse about China and um, so it's kind of like well what? how do you feel about China being this main supplier and also then being able to essentially exert quite a lot of trade control and so on and so forth so then you go well okay let's optimize for human rights well, then we need to wait until we get better innovations. In which case, we are still using fossil fossil fuels. Are we okay with that? So suddenly, you're you're kind of looking at: Are we optimizing for geo- geopolitical peace? Are we are we you know optimizing for climate change? Are we optimizing for humans? Are we optimizing for humans that live ex- that are live on the planet right now, or humans that live on the planet in fifty years' time? You know, so you know it's the little um, I guess game that I put in the chapter. As I say, if you've got like. Um, 10, a bag of 10 coins. And if you could kind of attribute your coins to different causes. So say you've you've got 10, maybe you put six on climate change, three on human rights, and one on geopolitics. Well, if, If that's how you invest in innovation and science and whatever to try and move things forward, what does that look like? Okay, well, there's six here, so maybe that means that we're going to invest a lot in factories to try and up production. Three in human rights, so we're going to do a little bit of investment in terms of new materials to try and get, you know, rid of the reliance on, on particular mines. Um, only one on geopolitics. Okay, we're not going to bother so much about moving investment out of China. We're all going to really focus on China, but we'll try and, I don't know, campaign for better laws of trade or whatever, right? So suddenly it gives you this, like, I guess, framework to try and work through these issues. But at the end of the day, it always comes back to just your moralistic leanings. Um, but it helps you understand why certain things happen, why decisions are made. It doesn't necessarily make them okay, but I think it's about understanding all these different, I guess, um, things that sometimes do result in a bit of a zero-sum game. And y- you bring up
0: specifically, uh, this is certainly a political issue, which you talk about in the book. And you talk about, for example, the idea of an authoritarian government, and asking that tough question, well, the, how does this work? And 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 looking at China being communist, uh, and you talk about you know smart communism question mark. So what does that really mean? And, and can you expand a little bit on on your argument about the difference between uh, an authoritarian government in relation to this specific issue versus one that's more
1: focused on on the capitalist and and the corporate sure Uh, drive sure so if you if you look at like um uh, if you look at different examples of how governments stimulate innovation not just innovation but then also the kind of um uh, getting these products to market right if you look at uh somewhere like china there's a lot of um control exerted by central government so they'll say to companies you know you have to switch to producing this thing or we're going to give you a lot more money if you produce this thing or in the case of electric cars they massively subsidize uh, consumers in terms of buying them so it's it's just simply cheaper so it really the there's a level of like through either simple control or through changing of laws or, or whatever it is there's a lot of um push if you will from, from central um, government whereas in other kind of um, countries where you have more capitalist um, I guess society you're kind of relying on the market so you're, you're sort of waiting on a company to decide that it's worth it for them to invest and take on something and when it comes to things like um, deep tech or technology that kind of comes out of uh, scientific innovation it can be extremely expensive to take something from the lab and put it into the market so you know we find in you know even places like the UK or in the US where we do have more capitalist systems and we, we don't have these um, as much uh, central government powers as you in places like China you still need to have that stimulus in order to get the research to happen. And then you sell IP to companies and try and encourage them to to take things to market by having ownership of the idea so that no one else can do it, for instance. So you have different kind of structures that get things through. And when it comes to stuff like um, batteries, for instance, China were really, really bullish in terms of pushing um, companies, consumers, and all sorts to massively uh, build and scale up uh capability in that space. And they did that at a cost as well. You know, there's it there wasn't necessarily they were just had great foresight um, and and are now reaping the rewards. You know, there would have been plenty of people adversely affected by being forced to stop doing one thing and doing another or, or whatever um, and China's not also great you know they have a lot of coal and whatnot so it's not like they're they're a sort of like electric uh, vehicle utopia or whatever but they as a country they were bo- bullish in terms of their focus on things like batteries and electric vehicles and not just for China itself but also in terms of trade and exporting batteries to other places and um, we've got you know lots of Chinese companies that are building, capabilities in places like germany for instance right next to where the cars are manufactured so they can sell their batteries straight into those cars so there there's a lot of like strategy here in terms of positioning um positioning china as a power there um, and you also see this through the kind of um the belt and road initiative that china has where they're building roads and electrics and ports um all you know through um africa through parts of asia and even into europe um which you know you can look at two ways you can look at it from a space of well they're investing in these countries and that's obviously getting good infrastructure but then of course it's well if china owns them they have control and, and so on and so forth who are those companies is it the government is it a company who is it and and what what do different laws mean in different places so you know it, that's where the kind of question comes in the sense of, well, China has the capability. Um, If we wanted to have all electric cars in places like UK or US, we would rely on um, countries like China to, to help that happen in a really quick way. But it's the question of at what cost are we happy with the power shift that comes with that? And I don't necessarily argue one way or the other from my own perspective. To be honest, I think I don't really know where I fall because, it, again, it comes back to you know all these different kind of moralistic questions and what is it we're optimizing for. But I think it's it, we have to consider what what is the cost and what is the balance and how do we how do we all feel about this different kind of um, power structures that come with needs that are, we seemingly have if we want more technologies. I and mean, we're seeing all of the kind of issues around Huawei, for instance, and 5G and and kind of, secure, you know, so-called security issues or, or whatever, I, I don't even know the state of it at the moment in terms of whether it's been proven to be safe or unsafe. But the point is, is that there's a level of care and a level of, um, you know, citizens care about this sort of thing, so it has to come into the equation. But at the same time, we also demand products. So, you know... It, which bit are we happy to compromise on? Does that make sense? And so that's kind of why I wanted to bring that into that chapter because, you know, one of the people I interviewed um, for the chapter, a journalist, um, you know, I, I sat him down, he, he writes about batteries and I said to him, you know, right, let's talk about batteries. And the first thing he says, like well, you simply cannot talk about batteries if you don't talk about China because that's the conversation here. The conversation here is a political one um, as well as a sort of, you know, technological scale one, um, way more so than, you know, an invention of a new kind of material battery or, or something like that.
0: I think you, the idea of at what cost asking that question is pretty much every single one of your chapters. It's it's so applicable to that. At what cost do we do X, right? So it consistently, it's not only what is the cost, but then at, at, at what cost do we where it becomes that kind of moral philosophy of like, well, how do we do this? How do we navigate this? It's so, it really is very complex to kind of make that determination. So I think it's great that you bring up this idea of, well, you know, there's an authoritarian government that has actually done this. um, And we're not looking at something as purely evil or purely good, but as, as nuanced and kind of residing in that gray area, as, as most ethical things seem to be right it's yeah, not a black and white well, thing
1: well and also I mean I think it's also not just that what I mean I, you're right that is a definitely a theme throughout the entire book I think the sort of the the secondary theme to that which perhaps maybe comes up a bit later in the book um or at least stronger in the book is is do we even need it in the first place to even then justify having the conversation about whether or not we even want to then right. take that cost on and I think that's where we can have conversations about you know uh, the difference between an authoritarian government and, and one that's not so but you know we also see the the, the sort of ravages of capitalist society too you know so this we have to kind of be um again it's it's really about coming back and being like what is it we're actually trying to do here what kind of society are we actually trying to create do we actually want this thing um and you know particularly with with technologies like you know the I mean, you may be jumping the gun a little bit, but things like brain-computer interfaces, it's like, do you know, there's a different conversation here with medical and consumer. And the cost of this, particularly from a company perspective in terms of privacy, but also in terms of um, uh, equality, who gets to access these sorts of things, all sorts, is humongous. And instead of going, is it worth the cost? It's kind of like, actually, should we even bother with this? Do we even want chips in our brains? Um, And I think that's, a lot of the time that that conversation gets missed particularly in sort of techno optimistic circles um because you know science and tech is positioned a lot of time understandably so as extremely exciting and as as progress as being something that we shouldn't question that progress is always good and you know uh, we as social science scientists No, it's not (laughs) progress, or at least our (laughs) idea of progress is not, is not always good. I mean, God, that the word progress was used to justify colonialism, you know? So we have to think bigger and think more broad when we think about, um, what does it mean to even try and advance society, advance for whom, advance in what way, and then look at the cost as well.
0: Yeah. So I think it, it goes back to kind of the basic context and cost and, and really kind of looking at those things, which, which again are very complex, and you, you briefly mentioned just now uh, colonization. And that kind of brings us into when you go into the second part of your book where you're talking about next and talking about commercializing space, mm. which is uh, when we use the term colonization of space, Like, do we really want to use that term? Mm-hmm. Because it does seem that there are individuals in the world that don't understand that that's, that's not what we want to do because, well, let's look at history, context, right? <laughs> and you also make the argument where this is kind of where it's flipped, where you talk about well, it's it's not a bad thing that there are elements of space
1: exploration that have been privatized. Talk a little bit more about that. Sure. Um, so yeah, I, I think the biggest kind of argument for privatization of space is the idea of democratization. Um, so you could you could argue that you know having only big um, government led space agencies. Uh, is a slow way of doing things. Is a bureaucratic way of doing things, and kind of holds back access in various different ways. Um, but I think that's probably where I would sort of stop there, because I'm not entirely sure I would say privatization is 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 okay when it comes to space. The reason being is that I think part of the the problem of privatization as a whole is that you you just don't really have much of a say or people in general don't really have much of a say about decisions of people that lead um, particular companies and the sort of privatization of space um if you look at it from this kind of uh what's in the mainstream media the kind of hype around it you're talking about figures like elon musk you're talking about figures like jeff bezos and you know i don't think i have to really say much more about those those two individuals to kind of hammer home the point that there's problems with lack of accountability and behavior of very f- powerful people um impacting uh society in in more ways than than really we can discuss in one podcast so sure absolutely so you know so there's 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 many different ways of thinking about privatization but the, the, I guess the kind of point that I also try and make in this in this chapter in particular is that um you know something like space is probably one of the most hypey areas of science and tech because it's exciting because it has a huge amounts of connotation with exploration and you know one small step for man one giant leap for mankind like uh, sort of frontier kind of ideas and so and you know this idea of like you know fulfilling our potential as as human beings and, and all this sort of thing um, but the reality of space commercialization is a satellite business which has been around for quite a long time um it's at the moment it's going through a big change because cost of um the cost of going to space has massively come down so you have way more entrance to the market you have a lot of space startups for instance um both because technology is cheaper, but also because um, the way s- various different kind of countries are structuring their laws is, you know, encouraging innovation in the space and encouraging more entrance to this market, um, particularly because there's a bigger need for more communications technologies up in space, whether that's internet access or um, being able to, you know, connect mapping softwares and, and all sorts of things. So, um, you know, th- there's a there's a huge amount of um, business that happens already, um in this space excuse the pun um but instead if you were to look at kind of mainstream media or if you were to and and, and this is not a demonization of mainstream media i wish we actually had another term for mainstream media because i feel like that's become quite weaponized as phrase but you know if you're to talk about kind of the um narratives that you tend to hear in popular culture around space it is this idea of like you know Elon Musk is gonna colonize Mars, or Richard Branson is gonna take you on holiday in space, or you know, someone else is gonna build a space hotel or or whatever, right? It's, it's very much about um human spaceflight and about um escaping the earth because climate change is non you know, it's not reversible. So we, we need to go somewhere else. Um and this, of course, is where all the colonization ideas come in as well. Um But really, when you think about um, privatization or or commercialization of space, you have to think about privatization and commercialization of anything else. It's just an industry, like any other industry, like the retail industry, like the travel industry, like the oil industry, like whatever industry. And the sorts of questions that we ask of those industries and of capitalism as a whole um, have to also be asked about the space industry. It's not enough to kind of just look at it as look at these amazing people like going to the stars and doing the hard thing and and you know allowing us to explore beyond the planet um it's also about okay well what kind of contracts exist what kind of laws exist who has power um who's making decisions all that kind of um stuff that kind of comes up and so that's kind of what i, I sort of the, the title of the chapter is um oh, i'm going to forget it now it was it's uh, seeing through the ro- going past the rose tinted glasses or something like that and I think that's kind of the, the big thing with space is that we do have this like, very rosy, very kind of sentimental um, attachment to it. Um, and, and that in and, is, in and of itself is hype. So um, so that's kind of what I wanted to get across in that chapter. I think that's we can also,
0: quote, blame Hollywood for that, because <laughs> there's a lot of, I mean, y- there's there's so much sci-fi out there. It's glamorous. It's yeah. it's exciting. It's great. And so there's a ton a ton of of sci-fi which with a very deep following. And you talk about kind of astrobiology and then aliens, and mm. I mean it's endlessly fascinating for anybody really mm. uh, to to think about that. So so when we think about commercializing space uh, and removing the space based rose tinted glasses,
1: that's it. Thank which, you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> which I thought was really uh, really great. I was like, yep, that that's that's right on. And so you know you you definitely have the. The the media part of that, I mean, it plays a huge part in in hyping it up. And and I I completely agree with you that the idea of space exploration is super fascinating and really does get to that point of being very hypey right yeah because um, it's easy to do that it's just it's almost like it, it almost naturally lends itself to that for lack of a better
1: yeah. term yeah I was gonna say I mean you'll know this more than me because I know you research you know the sort of visual cultures and visual communication I mean space is perfect for that sort of thing it's it's just amazing to try and visualize these ideas and bring them to life and imagination and all sorts and there, there's huge amount of power in, um, in these kind of ideas, both for good and for bad, you know, in the same way that any tool is like that. And that's one of the things that I kind of also, I also make that point in the, the Brain Computer Interface chapter. I kind of open it and say, you know, there's there's two sci-fi, um, I guess, inventions uh, in literature and in film that I I wish I had. And I'm sure everybody has their, you know, versions of what they would have. And mine is the, um, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the film version, there's this uh, gun it doesn't it doesn't kill anyone, but when you when you shoot the gun at another person, they feel how you feel. Um, and it's I've always really wanted to try and get people to understand what I'm feeling or what I'm trying to say, especially in romantic relationships. Um, and then the other um, sci-fi implement or whatever is in the Matrix, the kind of USB plug that you can plug into the back of your head. You can learn anything, um, and you can probably tell a lot about my personality that these are the two that I want. Um, but do I need them or do I just want them? And I think that we have to be quite um, honest with ourselves around um, desire. And particularly when we live in, if we live in places like the US or the UK, where we have very consumerist cultures, very material cultures, and, um, you know, desire is actually quite easily manufactured by companies, by advertisers, by the media, but, you know, whoever. Um And we can, you know, we can be led by our hearts over our heads many times. And it's not always bad, but I think it's about checking in sometimes. And particularly when we have conversations about things in science and tech that can be really exciting, that can make your blood boil, that can, you know, and and there's been so much work done over the years to make science and tech interesting because Lots of people don't think it's interesting, so it's like we've we've done so much work. All these documentaries that tell you know Carl Sagan tell you about the stars, and all these um, you know Wired articles are made to f- make you feel wonder and awe and all these things. Um, we also need to have another side of science communication that is about critical thinking, that is about positioning science within society, not seeing it as this fantastical other. Um, that separates it from these, these stories and these narratives and these wonderful um, sort of manifestations of ideas of, of, of writers and thinkers and technologists um, and position them correctly. And that doesn't mean getting rid of all those ideas, but it just means not only having those ideas and not being swept up in, in that hype, right? <laughs>
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, you, you touch up on uh, several of the points that you make in, in part three, of your book which I want to briefly get to I mean you have your book is very robust and wonderful thank you uh, and a, and, a, and an easy and educational read so uh, which is which is great uh, so certainly we, we can't go through every single uh part no, I uh, know. every single chapter <laughs> but we're, we're going to get through all the parts so in part 3 you really you drive home this idea of like do we really need this mm-hmm. I just recently rewatched The Matrix because I actually had assigned it to my students to watch. No way! And it, yeah, exactly. It was the first time uh, since I've been in my teaching career that I was I, that I actually assigned that for for quote homework. Love. And So we had a, a I know, yeah, <laughs> we had a great conversation about uh, it's an inter it's an it's an upper division uh, interpersonal communication course where we talk about what it really means to live in a mediated society. Mm. So the digital aspect really comes in, and I totally agree with you. I would love to. To learn how to fly a chopper in thirty seconds, right? Mm. I'm like, oh, do you know how to fly that? Not yet. And thirty seconds later, there you are flying it. So, but do we really need that? And what are the consequences? And what are the costs to be able to get such a technology? And you, uh, you particularly talk about uh, brain-computer interfaces, uh, just artificial intelligence, which is also, I think, kind of a a very uh, hypey mm-hmm. type of mm-hmm. uh, you know, sector in, in in science and in tech. And then beyond aliens and astrobiology. And you briefly mentioned earlier this idea of like, do we really want or need mm-hmm. chips in our brain? Mm. Like, do we, do we need to, does Facebook really need to get our thoughts directly from our brain? Is that a necessity? So talk a little bit more about, if you will, what you mentioned in relation to consumer versus medical. Yeah. So
1: there are needs for this. Yeah, but again, the context. Definitely, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, um, brain brain technologies, brain computer interfaces are. It's an incredible space, and, and when I say incredible, I mean it's it's complex, it's interesting, it's um, it's it's hard science, you know, trying to understand the brain. I mean, that's we all know how difficult um neuroscience is whether we're neuros- neuroscientists or we just have <laughs> been told how many neurons are in our brains and so on and so forth this is really really complex science and the science that exists is there's lots of it but there's so much we don't know um so that's kind of where i start actually with the chapter is going let me just explain to you how difficult it is to understand the brain um and I'll I'll leave that for for people who want to read it because it's it's, it's it takes too long to say for a podcast. Um, but I guess I, I make the argument that there are real um, medical need for interventions in the brain. And, and, you know everything from um, you know brain computer interfaces. You can think of cochlear implants to help with um, people who are deaf or hard of hearing. Um, You can think about, for instance, um, various different ways of stimulating the brain for people with things like Parkinson's, for instance, to take control of the tremors. Um, There's even research out there that's being done um, around uh, people who have depression and other kind of um, mental illnesses like that and how can our understanding of and our interaction via technology with the brain help um deal with some of the the symptoms and the and the the issues that a lot of these different kind of diseases result in so that's where the kind of medical um side exists and none of the cochlear implant is is really the only one that's kind of mass market to to a large degree um, a lot of this stuff is it's very much in the lab in terms of it's still being um, put through various different trials. It's really, really hard to take stuff to market because for instance, if you manage to, um, I guess, do enough research around a particular implant in a particular patient's, um, head in their brain, it's really specific to them as a patient. So turning that into a device that you can kind of sell to anyone is, is the, the economics are extremely difficult to get right. So this is like a very, um, in the lab kind of thing, that that is going on that's really really important but it's still um early stage for many different kinds of um scientists all over the globe um but there's been a rise recently in discussions around consumer brain computer interfaces and this is kind of you you get this a lot Elon Musk comes up again where he has his um his company Neuralink um which is talking about putting a, a implant in the brain to you know i don't know make stop us from being taken over by ai i think is one of the arguments that he has for this and he has legitimate scientists working on this it's not it's not um you know bad science but then at the same time we also don't know because we don't we aren't seeing he's not releasing the kind of um the actual work for other scientists to kind of check so that's uh that's been done facebook are looking into it in terms of um basically saying it would help in terms of being able to type better and communicate better because you would be able to think of words and you could type instead of typing them it's quicker I don't know um there's a lot of kind of work that's going on in those kind of spaces but then you've even got one sort of level down where you're talking about things like um EEG headsets So you might have seen them you know these things you put on and it's meant to help you with things like meditation so it can read so-called it can read your brain waves and tell you when you're relaxed um all sorts of things. So there's this sort of increasing um, innovation, businesses, and narratives around this idea of consumer brain interface and kind of harnessing the power of your brain, being able to just think um, and not just read what's happening in your brain, but also put things into your brain. Um, so, you know, like information, like the matrix, for instance. These are all things that, that businesses and you know, are claiming that they are working on. This is not, you know, they're just talking about it randomly, although saying that we still don't have any evidence that they can really do it. Um, and wh- where this kind of, I guess, there's different ways of thinking about this, this difference between consumer and medical. You can look at it from the need versus want, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute. But um, before that, there's also this idea of being driven, products being driven by a market, but, sort of not in a justifiable way. So what I mean by that is, for instance, you see a lot of these um brain training companies popping up. And there is very little science backing what they claim they can do. And I, I go through this in the book, kind of showing that there was a study done that went through kind of all the websites and all the claims they make and, and whether it was backed by peer-reviewed papers or, or not. There's very little science backing this stuff. But they get a lot of, they get a lot of funding, you know, investors are interested in these companies. Um, because they know people will buy it. <laughs> so invest, you got to remember investors are not necessarily, they don't really care about whether something works or whether something is right for the world or whatever. They care about whether or not someone will buy it. So this is why I kind of come back to this idea of desire. It's like, if you desire to have something, um, someone will make it whether or not it's right or wrong. Um, and then you will buy it and then, you know, uh, it goes on. So that's one thing to consider. The other side that I, I, the bigger part of my argument, I suppose, is when I come to need versus want, is when you think about things like consumer uh, brain computer interface, and let's put aside for a second the kind of how early on this technology is. Um, let's, you know, assume or let's let's put out a scenario that this technology and the science moves forward and we do eventually get to the point that we have brain computer interfaces that everybody can, you know, can access in the sense it's on the market. If we think about something like email, um, you cannot want an email. You can choose not to have an email, right? But you also can't really. Um, you Quite a lot of jobs nowadays will require you to have an email. You probably need an email to interact with government, um, depending on the country you live in, but quite a lot of countries now will do a lot of e-governance, um, your taxes, all sorts of things you're, you're going to need an email to kind of take part in society. So even if you're against it, even if you don't want it, you kind of just have to have it. And there's a sort of like, um, it's not just social pressure, it's, it's economic pressure too, right? That you, that you have to adopt this technology. If you kind of expand that out to the idea of brain computer interfaces, what does it mean if we live in a society where there's, there's this pressure that you have to have a chip in your brain? Um, so for instance, say, you know, students start, using them the wealthier students of course would be the first ones to have them if if they're made by um, companies um so they you know their exam results get a lot better because they're able to train themselves better they're able to learn things faster they're able to manage their emotions better whatever it is that these brain put interfaces are allowing what does that mean in terms of equality for people that you know don't can't afford or don't want to, or from a health perspective, just simply it it would kill them to put these in their brains or whatever. What does that mean for a sort of socioeconomic um, chasm that that could create, right? And we talk a lot about, you know technology and the the impacts it has in terms of democratizing and making society better but we also have to remember that there's a huge access issues um, and and huge problems in terms of cost and so on and so forth of of who gets to use these technologies first and then who gets to kind of control how they're built and how they're used and adopted and so on and so forth so that's kind of where I come back this idea of like do we even need this in the first place do we even need to have brain training we have a thing already it's called learning and you know there's quite a lot of uh thinking about how to do it well <laughs> um you know and, and it's different if we're talking about from a medical perspective somebody who's lost the ability to use a limb i mean uh, i forgot to say prosthetics that's a, that's actually probably the biggest area of innovation in, in terms of brain put interfaces and um, controlling uh, prosthetics for people who don't either can't use their limbs or have lost limbs um, that makes complete sense but you know, being able to type faster, being able to connect your thoughts instead of just writing them down, you know, I, I'm not convinced that we need that. And to me, the the socioeconomic um, concerns that it brings up and the consent stuff. And also, I mean, God, if it's businesses that are, you know, uh, building these, what does it mean in terms of data and privacy and access and all sorts? It just, it, 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 to me, it just seems um, mad, to um to move this forward and i think this is where the kind of technological determinism comes in too, where it's almost like quite a lot of people are like well it's the way we're going so we might as well just try and build them ethically or we might as well just try and regulate or because it's coming this stuff's coming and it's like well, why it's coming because we are as a society we're funding it and we're condoning it, and we're not asking as many questions, perhaps. Like, we don't have to build this stuff. It doesn't just magic itself up. It is built by humans. (laughs) And um, so that's kind of where this need versus want, you know, consumer versus health kind of comes in with, with that chapter.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Yeah, that's, and there's, I mean, there's just so much here. There's so much even more to talk about, because you can really take every single one of your chapters and, and just kind of extrapolate into the future, uh, and even more so what, what it currently means and, and what it can look like. Um, Gemma, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I'm, <laughs> I'm curious really to know, especially now that you're in, in a PhD program, uh, what's next for you?
1: Sure. Um, well, yeah, as I said, the um, the topic of my PhD is is sort of ethics, responsibility, and sort of political economy as well um, around corporate futurism. So that's, that's the kind of area that I'm most intrigued by at the moment um sort of from the perspective of uh, if there's people out there that have the ability to map futures um and share their findings and share their tools um you know it's all about creating future doing futurism is about creating a, a future and being able to make change now in order to create a more desirable future i have a lot of questions around well who gets to do futurism um If you're selling it to a corporate what does that kind of mean in terms of your own personal responsibility and ethics um and it also makes you think a lot about um is there such a thing as sort of unfair advantage when it comes to knowledge um so you know is it is it unfair that some people know about futurism and others don't um and particularly when you start looking at companies and kind of um reinforcing power for instance um what does that look like when you start looking at like global economic systems so this is the kind of area that i'm interested in, which does build of course on this idea of hype and narratives and the power of words and the the power of um of of, uh, i don't know attributing um truth to certain people or certain media outlets or certain whatever without that kind of bigger broader systematic um discussion so um yeah I guess that's what's next right now but I'm always interested in so many different things and I think my biggest um challenge throughout this PhD is going to be to um just work on one thing for a long time and yeah um (laughs) yeah not kind of go off and think about something else because there's always amazing things to look at but one thing I just wanted to really briefly say for anyone who's 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 listening um my book might sound like it's got all this random stuff and and every chapter is quite deep and you know, what does it really, I don't know, do beyond explaining these um these areas of interest. And really what I want the book to do, and I hope that's the the feedback i am been getting from readers and whatnot, is it it's kind of just showing you kind of taking your hands and going, this is how you can, if you like, try and navigate looking at something a bit deeper. And these are just examples that they're the areas I've chosen, but realistically the kind of approach of looking at values, looking at systems, asking different kind of questions that, that is, is, is how you do critical thinking, right? It's critical thinking in practice. And I really want the book to inspire people to think. I don't want people to read it and go, Gemma says this, so therefore that's the truth about farming. It's going, it's asking questions and really trying to encourage that and empower people really at the end of the day um, to be able to engage with all these areas that, you know, are super important.
0: Yeah, and I think that's great. And I think you really did that. I mean, I, you know, just accepting a technologically deterministic society puts us in a in a dangerous place, um, because we really need to be actively engaged citizens mm. in that discourse. Uh, and, 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 I think your, your book definitely brings up those questions. And I think that's great to, to really think about, uh, these concepts in a critical way and to say, no, we don't really need to have chips in our brain. <laughs> and if we do, why? Right. Yes. Exactly. So yeah, no, I think that's, <laughs> that's great. Uh, thanks again so much for joining us, uh, today, Gemma, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Marcy. No, this has and, been wonderful. Thank you for your questions. Yes, yeah. and I, I'm sure your dissertation will turn into a book. So once that's published, you know, keep me posted. Mm, fingers <laughs> crossed, and <laughs> and, and, uh, and you can come back and, and we can chat um, some more. So, uh, so thank you, uh, thank you to all of our listeners. Uh, and until next time, everyone. Cheers.